take your Bibles as we go back to 1 Peter chapter 1. 1 Peter chapter 1, be working through the end of chapter 1, beginning of chapter 2, as we continue in our series. As we've stated in the context of the book, Peter is writing to a group of believers facing growing pressure from a hostile world. They're being reviled, they're being maligned, they're being belittled. Now, while we're not facing the same kind of persecution, growing persecution from Rome as these believers that Peter's addressing, we do face hardship and pressures in this life. In our church family, there are believers currently enduring the anxiety of family members in grave danger in places of war. Consider their concern this morning. There are believers in our body grieving over the loss of loved ones. Grieving and anxious over children wandering from the Lord in spiritual danger. And an even outright denial of Jesus Christ. There are marriage relationships under immense strain. Even in danger of being broken apart. We face together prolonged illnesses, spiritual discouragement, and doubts about God's goodness. People within our body are facing severe challenges, upheaval, and discouragement. And this isn't really surprising, is it? We could probably say that in most points of our church life over time. But it does seem uniquely strong right now, doesn't it? Everywhere we turn in life right now, there's conflict. There's conflict on the news. There's conflict at our workplaces. There's conflict in our opinions about what's happening in our world. There's conflict in our schools and amongst our families. And we have to conclude, yes, even in our church. So how do you tend to respond when you're facing that kind of strain or pressure? Is our tendency under such pressure to be more loving, more patient, more kind? Where do we turn for a resource to handle that stress and those frustrations most often? It's not our nature to be more loving when we're tired or when we're under stress. When we're exhausted, exhausted, anxious, or pressured, we often tend toward impatience. We often tend to lash out at others, don't we? When we feel powerless against our adversaries, we're prone to exert power against those closest to us, one author writes. When we face hardship, it's our nature to turn inward, to rely on our own abilities, our own control, our own resources to cope with such circumstances. But Peter's going to provide for us two more commands as he continues to encourage us to stand firm in God's grace, to live a life of holiness, to recognize who we've been made to be in Jesus Christ. The book of 1 Peter asks, what do you do when you are in a trial? What are you supposed to do? How are you supposed to respond? What resources does God provide? He answers, start by rehearsing the gospel realities that God has provided to you in your salvation. We saw that clearly in verses 3 through 12. 
Then beginning in verse 13, we've been examining God's commands that Peter gives to us as how we're to live in light of this new identity. He's saying, look like your father. And he says that in several ways. We've looked at several of these commands. He says, live in hope. Set your hope on approaching grace. He says, live in holiness. Be holy as he is holy. He says, live in fear, a reverent fear of a God who says, don't take my precious sacrifice lightly. This morning, he's going to continue by saying, live with love and live with longing. Let's look at verse 22 and read through chapter 2, verse 3. First Peter 1, 22. God's word says to us, his people, having purified your souls By your obedience to the truth for a sincere brotherly love, love one another earnestly, fervently from a pure heart. Since you have been born again, not of perishable seed, but of imperishable through the living and abiding word of God. For all flesh is like grass and all its glory like the flower of grass. The grass withers and the flower falls, but the word of the Lord remains forever. And this word is the good news, the gospel that was preached to you. So, or therefore, put away all malice and all deceit and hypocrisy and envy and all slander. Like newborn infants long for the pure spiritual milk, that by it you may grow up into salvation, if indeed you have tasted that the Lord is good. Let's ask for his help now as we consider his words to us this morning. Father, we Pray that you would open our eyes, that we might behold our God. That we might see what he expects, that we might recognize the grace that he gives, that he never commands without grace to obey. Help us to recognize that as Peter has been demonstrating, you've made us alive. You've given us life. You've changed us from the inside out. Therefore, all the commands that you give us, we have the power to obey through your spirit. Encourage us to strive to obey this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. Our passage teaches us this morning that because you have new life in the gospel, believers are to love fellow believers and to long for God's word. First, because you have new life in the gospel, love one another. Look back at verses 22 through 25. The passage breaks nicely into two parts. The main point of this first paragraph is seen clearly in the command given in verse 22. Are you starting to get the idea that how we understand Peter is to look at the verbs? Look at the commands. They're guiding us through this section. Peter will provide a reason why we should love both before the command and then another reason afterward. But he's saying the characteristic mark of a Christian community is love for one another. What does this love look like? He says first, love one another fervently. The word fervently means to love without pretense, without hypocrisy, without just putting on a face. Sincerity here would not be a strong enough word. Our love is to be intense. Peter's indicating that it will be hard work. He uses a word translated as fervently that means to stretch or to strain. This is the same term that describes how intensely Jesus is praying in the Garden of Gethsemane. 
Picture a race car driver or a runner at the end of a tightly contested contest coming into that finish line. He doesn't let off the gas. He doesn't start to coast. The the competitor's right there with him. He is all-out effort. It's every last ounce of energy. That's the idea here. That's what it requires to be in a body. Peter tells us that it's not just enough to be kind to each other for a few brief moments each week as we interact at a worship service. That wouldn't do justice to this wording, would it? We're to love in the same way that Christ has loved us. That's the same word. It requires a choice, a commitment to the good of others in spite of their weaknesses, in spite of their sinfulness, in spite of personal offense at times. In every chapter of this letter, Peter will encourage us to demonstrate love to one another. It's a marker of the supernatural love that we have experienced. He says, love fervently with a pure heart. So we're to love one another deeply. This doesn't come naturally to us, does it? But to those who've been given life from God, our love for one another is to become more and more like his love for us. Again, it's transformation from the inside out. Think of how well these descriptive words picture God's love for you. He loves us fervently, eagerly, deeply. God does not merely tolerate us even though we're so unlovely. He doesn't just put up with us. We try to make kind of excuses and say, well, I'll hold you at a distance and we'll be okay. But that's not how God loves us. He chooses to love again and again and again. To love with a pure heart means that we're choosing what is best for that brother or sister, even when that's uncomfortable. Even when that includes a word of correction, not because we want to gain anything from them, but because we want what's best for them. Now, this doesn't mean love other believers like they're your brother or your sister. Peter's saying love other believers because they already are your brothers and sisters. Can you see the difference? You see, the decision for them to be part of your spirituality wasn't made by you. This was his choice. That's important to keep in mind, isn't it? Do you see how that truth should shape and motivate your love for those in the body that are hard to love as well as those that you might find easier to love? We choose what is best for them, not because of how we feel, but because of who God has made us to be in spite of their annoyances, in spite of their sins against us at times. Now, knowing your hearts, knowing you're like me, isn't it likely that someone has come to your mind in the body that can be hard for you to love. What does God want to do with this word to you this morning? Why do you think God has placed that person in your path, in this church body, surrounded by these truths? How is he seeking to glorify himself in your struggle to love them? What is he trying to show you about yourself? What is he trying to show you about himself? 
You see, this passage is demonstrating the Christian life cannot be lived authentically in isolation from other believers. Peter is saying you need other people, other Christians, even people hard to love, to show what the gospel's really like, to let God truly do all of his work in your life. The key to obeying this command then is to remind yourself of how he loves you. By this we know love, First John says, that he laid down his life for us. And we ought to lay down our lives for the brothers. But if anyone has the world's good and sees his brother in need, yet closes his heart against him, how does God's love abide in him? Little children, let us not love in word or talk, but in deed and in truth. Listen, Peter is preaching a sermon here. That's what First Peter is. That's what the book of James is. And we would say in colloquial terms, he's gone to meddling, hasn't he? He's stepping on our toes. I. Howard Marshall, who's a commentator, aptly applies this right to where we live and think. He writes, Peter assumes that Christians can and must love one another. So think of the man who sits on the opposite side of the church from you, to whom you rarely speak. Think of the woman in the choir with a cacophonous voice who ought to have retired voluntarily years ago. Think of that teenager with a ghastly hairstyle who shows an adolescent disdain for an old square like you. Do you love them? Deeply and from the heart. If not, what excuse can you offer for going against this plan? This straightforward command. What excuse could we offer back to God? Do we have one? Isn't the only proper response to the Spirit's conviction for failing to love repentance? Ask God to forgive us. Ask Him, earnestly beg Him for the grace to help you do what you cannot and sometimes don't even want to do on your own. To love your brothers and sisters. Now we come to the reasons why we're to love. First, we love one another because we've been redeemed. Verse 22. Look back again at verse 22. Having purified your souls by your obedience to the truth for a sincere or genuine brotherly love, now love one another. This first phrase refers to our conversion or our redemption. This is Peter's, really, it's not a shorthand way of saying it, but it's the way he identifies what it is to be, be Christ. It isn't just that we say he's our Savior, he's our Lord. To be his means we must obey him. He describes believers as those who obey the word, the gospel. He describes unbelievers throughout this letter as those who disobey the truth. So Peter uses this idea of, of obedience and conformity to the truth as expressing what it means when we come to Christ and what God therefore expects. Now we need to keep in mind that this has been a difficult command for the church since Peter gave it. This isn't just uniquely difficult to people living today with our circumstances. Peter's writing to a people who know natural divisions by jealousies and hatreds of the past. Some are Jews, some are Gentiles, they don't get along. Some are slaves, some are masters. 
So understand, this has never been natural or easy for God's people, but because we've been brought into this relationship with God, it is possible. We do have duty to work at it. Consider how we regularly make this commitment to the Lord and one another. When we say together we will work and pray for the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. We will walk together in Christian love, bear the burdens of one another, exercise an affectionate care and watchfulness over each other, and as occasion may require, faithfully admonish and entreat one another. We will aid one another in sickness and distress, seeking to cultivate Christian sympathy in feeling and courtesy in speech, being slow to take offense and always ready for reconciliation. So do you truly mean to keep these promises when you recite them? Do you see why it's important that we do that? That we keep this before us? Is the relationship you have with God transforming your relationship with other believers? The second reason we see is that we're to love one another because we've been given life. We're to love because we've been given spiritual life. We saw At the beginning of chapter 1, verse 3, where Peter writes, According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again. He gave us life. The emphasis is on God who provided that to us. Love then is both a result and a responsibility that comes with this new life. Now, what is Peter's logic here connecting love and God's word? That isn't probably naturally how we're thinking. Why does he tell us about the power that the word is living and enduring? Why talk about the word? Because God's love is the source of our love. The message of his love, this gospel, this good news, this word is what we need to hear. It feeds and fuels our love for others. The love that binds the redeemed flows from the love of the redeemer. So how do we develop this kind of love for one another when it is often so hard? Peter's showing us that we're to love each other in the context of God's saving grace. You're to view your brothers and sisters in Christ through the same lens that God sees them. Think about what Hebrews 2 tells us. It tells us that Jesus is not ashamed to call those here in this body brothers and sisters if they know him. If Jesus, who knows their heart far better than you do, who knows the blackness, the wickedness, the continual desire for sin, the continual giving in to sin, better than you do, and he calls them brother, why can't you? That's the question Peter's setting up before us. If he's willing to love them, why can't we? We're told here in this that we have power through the new life. We have power to love in this word because the word is living. He's saying you have supernatural life that's been put into you. Don't doubt that you can do this hard thing. We read that by the word of the Lord, the heavens were made and by the breath of his mouth, he just speaks. All their hosts come to life. For he spoke and it came to be. He commanded and it stood firm. 
James 1.18 reiterates this truth. Of his own will, he brought us forth by the word of truth. God's word uniquely creates life. Therefore, there's responsibilities. There's privileges. The word communicates. It converts. Think of Abraham and Sarah who laugh at the impossibility of God's word to them. His promise to them. And God replies, is any word, that's the literal translation, is any word too hard for God? When the angel Gabriel promises to Mary an even more incredible birth, she does not laugh. She marvels. And Gabriel repeats God's response to Sarah. He says, no word is impossible with God. God's word of promise is self fulfilling by God's supernatural powerful effective word he brought his own son into this world do you see that God's word accomplished that no word is too hard for him by a supernaturally powerful word he has brought you and your brothers and sisters into the same eternal life do we tend to view each other through that lens we don't do we Now, to affirm this point, Peter is quoting Isaiah 40, 6 and 8. So, again, this is a little confusing. Why quote a passage about grass and flowers? Well, Isaiah 40 follows a prophecy from God to his people that described them going into exile. Again, God's people will be exiles, like the audience that Peter is speaking to. And they're in need of comfort. This quote is contrasting our ability to live and love with God's ability to do both. Our ability is small. Our power is is no power at all. Our lives are short. Our control is almost non-existent. And yet we chase and elevate each of these things every day. We try to hold on to it. God is saying you have no power. Consider how brief our existence truly is on this planet. The brevity of life is meant to sober us. It's meant to help us see the contrast in the power of the word. Our lives are a vapor. Psalm 103.16 tells us that after we're gone, we'll be remembered no more. You and I will not be remembered within two generations of our death. Just think of that for a moment. We can remember a good bit about our parents, right? We likely recall when they were born and where, what they looked like. We can remember the sound of their voice, but do you remember those same things about your grandparents? Do you know their full names? If they were married, do you know their dating and marriage history? Do you know where they were born, what they were passionate about, what they liked to do on their weekends, what their vocation was? And then even beyond them, what do you know of your great-grandparents? We are very temporary. But so often we live as if we matter most in this world, don't we? John Wesley captures both the brevity of life and our need of God's word. He writes, I am a creature of a day. I am a spirit come from God and returning to God. I want to know one thing, the way to heaven. God himself has condescended to teach me that way. He has written it down in a book. Oh, give me that book. 
at any price. Give me the book of God. Let me be a man of one book. It uniquely teaches me about life. So Peter's quoting Isaiah 40 to demonstrate to us what God wanted to impress on his people then. No matter how big, no matter how powerful the kingdoms and rulers of this world may appear to be, they are nothing compared to him. They're nothing compared to his word. They possess no true eternal power. We see what's happening in our world and it causes us anxiety and fear because we recognize we are not in control. But God's word is that he is. God's life-giving, life-sustaining word will endure, so let it lead you to develop his character within you. Do you see what he's saying? I have implanted life-giving power inside of you. Live that out. Let it produce in you the fruit of love for your brothers and sisters. Secondly, because you have new life in the gospel, long for his word. Let's go back to chapter 2 and read verse 1 again. He says, So put away all malice and all deceit and hypocrisy and envy and all slander. Like newborn infants, long for the pure spiritual milk, that by it you may grow up into salvation, if indeed you have tasted that the Lord is good. Again, in this paragraph, there is only one true command in the Greek text. Though in our translation, it looks like there's two. We see that command in verse 2. It's long, crave, desire eagerly the pure spiritual milk. Peter begins verse 1 with so then or therefore. He's making a connection now back to that previous paragraph. And first he's saying set aside sin. Verse 2 carries the weight of a command because it's so closely connected to the command to crave the word. We can rightly conclude that if we're tolerating and accommodating these relational sins, we will not want the word of God. It will diminish our taste for God himself. Have you found that to be true? We must put off these sins. At the bottom of our little cul-de-sac in our neighborhood, there is a creek that runs along the backside of our subdivision. My children are 12, 10, and 9. And they've called that creek their second home. That means that the garage is also their second closet or second laundry room. Because as they often come home, they are extremely muddy and sandy. They have sand all over their shoes and their clothes. And in order to be clean, to keep all of that sand outside of the house where it belongs... They have to take off those clothes in the garage. They have to put off the dirt and the mud and the sand. In the same way, this is a picture of how we are to be regularly putting off the sin. Malice is a general word for wickedness of every kind, but it's especially here toward others. Deceit carries the idea of bait or snare. It means being disingenuous with others. It means kind of tricking them so that you can get what you want. It's manipulation. Hypocrisy comes from a word that means to wear a mask. It refers to the way that we present a very carefully crafted impression of ourselves so that people won't know really what we're really thinking. Envy is the petty jealousies we have of another believer's reputation or opportunities that we want or think we deserve. 
Slander is the harsh and condemning words that we speak about others, picking them apart with no care for their real spiritual health or growth. It expresses irritation with them rather than choosing to love them in spite of their weaknesses and even sins. Now, why these five sins? Right, certainly we've read the New Testament enough to know that these aren't all the sins that are listed in the New Testament. Why these five? There are other sins God's people struggle to put off. Well, these things that we're to be putting away have one thing in common. These things uniquely have the power to undo other people. They have the power to hurt your brothers and sisters. They destroy relationships as opposed to love which builds and strengthens others. Now let's apply this to ourselves for a moment. Why do we tend to expect that because we have new life here in the church that we will not face sin from other believers? That's hard for us at times, isn't it? We tell ourselves in our minds, that person's another Christian. They should not treat me that way. That's not fair. But why do we say that? Does Peter think that way? Does he think that you will not be sinned against by other believers? I want you to see how these verses correct our common wrong expectations within a body. Why are we surprised that sinners, even though they've been saved, get upset with us and sin against us? Peter's acknowledging that believers have to put away sin, and the verb is saying you have to keep doing it, even though they're saved. It's just like my kids. From time to time, they'll go back to the creek, and they'll have to take off those clothes again when they come home. So should you expect to be hurt and sinned against in the church? Peter says, yes. How is that encouraging? It doesn't seem to fit with the theme of the letter, does it? Well, there's still remaining sin in the lives of every believer. Should you expect to be hurt and even sinned against by your spiritual leaders in our church? I wish I could say no. I wish I could, but I can't. Your spiritual leaders struggle with the very same sin nature that you do. Peter's acknowledging that we all have issues still. I want you to think of all the churches that we read about in the New Testament. Just scan that back through in your mind. Which one of them was made up of believers who were fully sanctified? Any of them? Are any of them addressed for their sins against one another? Aren't all of them? When people say that the church is full of hypocrites and sinners and it's all so disappointing, I wish we could get back to the New Testament church. What are they missing when they say that? They're missing a biblical view of the church. Peter's saying these New Testament churches are fighting against malice toward each other, envy, hypocrisy, deceit, and slander. So what's the view that Peter's trying to give us? A healthy body still gets sick from time to time, doesn't it? Just because you get sick doesn't mean you're terminally ill, right? 
The health of a body is not seen in that it never gets sick, but that it's equipped to fight off those germs. It's equipped and engages in fighting a virus when it's attacked. My point isn't that we recognize, okay, sin's going to be in the body and we just tolerate that. Peter says, put it away from you. But just because you see sickness in the church doesn't mean you run away. Peter says we work on it. We grow. We address sin together. We love each other and strive together for each other's growth in godliness. Remember, we often say and need to remind ourselves that the church is a hospital for the spiritually sick. It's not a museum. Of course the church is filled with sick people. Don't be shocked when other people tell you that they're struggling. Let this passage help shape your understanding of the nature of a church filled with saved yet struggling sinners. Yet here's the hope. It's found in what God can do. We see it in verses 2 and 3. We're to crave the word. We're given the resource to change, to be different, to grow to put off these things. We don't have to do it in and of ourselves. This happens as we long for the pure spiritual milk. The word spiritual means rational or reasonable. It's the same word used in Romans 12.1. I appeal to you, brothers, by the mercies of God, present your bodies a living sacrifice, wholly acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship, or translated in other versions, your rational or reasonable service. So Thomas Schreiner writes, the means by which God sanctifies or transforms believers is through the mind. He wrote a book. I know some of us like to say, well, we're not readers, but God takes that excuse off the table. The beautiful thing about living today is we have alternate ways of intake of the word. We can listen to it. But we must be taking it in. The means by which God sanctifies believers is through the mind, through the continued proclamation of the word. Spiritual growth is not primarily mystical, but rational. And rational in the sense that it is informed and sustained by God's word. This is exactly what Paul has already told us in Romans 12. Be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Now, Peter's not saying that growth in godliness is merely obtaining more and more Bible facts as if we're in this giant quiz. And the more facts you know about the Bible, the better you do. Nor can we conclude that our emotions and behavior are not intended to be affected. But if we're taking in the word like God intends us to do, if we're listening here in what Peter is saying, and we let that shape the way we're thinking, it will change your heart and your behavior. What Peter and Paul are saying is that transformation happens from the inside out as our minds are changed and shaped by the truths of God's word. If you see a passionless Christian, it's not because they aren't taking in enough of God's word. It's that they aren't really engaging with what it's doing. Someone's engaging with the word. Think of the apostle Paul who knows it well, who loves it. Is he a passionless Christian? Certainly not. As we learn more and more about our God, it directly affects and shapes and transforms what we love, what we desire, what we feel, which then shape our actions and lifestyle. How are we to crave the word? 
like newborn infants. Like newborn infants, here's the command, long for the word. Peter gives us this ready-made illustration, this analogy, to help us know how we're to pursue the word. So think of the insistence of an infant for milk. The word newborn means very newly alive. A baby does not care what time of the day it is. She only knows that she is hungry. She wants one thing for sustenance. This is such a fitting analogy for how we're to desire the word all throughout our lives. This isn't a picture of, well, some people are babies and some people are older and some people need milk and some people need meat. That's not the connection. This is what we need. This is the attitude we're to have toward the word throughout our lives. He says the pure milk. Shoppers in the ancient world were well aware of the tactics of dishonest merchants who would add a little water to the milk or the wine that they were selling. They're trying to earn a little bit more profit. It was impure. Have you ever come across spoiled milk after you'd already poured that bowl of cereal? And you're pouring that milk and you can smell something is off. There's no hesitation to throw that away. There's no health there. But God's words, we're told, never spoils. It never fails to accomplish his purposes. Edmund Clowney puts it this way, Christians must be addicted to the Bible. Doesn't that sound like what an infant is? Addicted to milk? He says, secondly, so that you may grow. So that you may grow. We're growing up into the full and final salvation that Peter has already stated is ready to be revealed at the last time when Christ comes. Again, Peter has in mind the full view of salvation where yes, it started at a point in time, but even our sanctification is part of that salvation that will be completed when we are glorified as we see Jesus Christ. What he's telling us though is that growth takes time. Think of that analogy of the newborn. A newborn infant is not immediately an expert at nursing. It takes some time. Those first few days can be frustrating. It can be discouraging at first, but the great longing and desire and the knowledge that this is what that baby needs keeps both mom and baby working at it. And once that skill is developed, the milk does exactly what it's supposed to, doesn't it? The nursing baby is well-fed and even provided with unique protection from disease from that mother's milk. It's an incredible miracle, but it's the perfect illustration of how God intends for us to grow. As believers, we all know that we need to be in God's word in order to grow and thrive. We've concluded that because Bible intake is so necessary, we just assume that it's going to be natural and effortless. But we get real discouraged when it isn't, don't we? I think we can all sympathize with that discouragement. As one commentator notes, it requires perseverance on the part of both God and his child. God's perseverance with us is unquestioned as we seek health and growth from the word. But our own perseverance can flag. We do not expect our time in the word to require practice, but it does. 
Just like a nursing infant has to learn how to nurse, so we must learn how to receive his word through repeated efforts to do so, humbly asking for and accepting help. That's what we want to be as a body of believers, striving together to be word-centered, word-dominated followers of Jesus Christ. We're admitting that we need help. Peter is saying these are commands given in the plural, you all, as churches, as believers, long together for this milk. This is a community project. We need each other to do this well. Peter is speaking to suffering believers, and what does he say they need? He says they need to grow. He says that reading the Bible, though it can be challenging, it takes time, you cannot grow without it. Have you not seen in your own life that your proximity, your time investment in the word is directly related to your growth? Number three, because you experienced his goodness. Peter's quoting Psalm 34, verse 8, O taste and see that the Lord is good. Blessed is the man who takes refuge in him. Do you understand that God is good by experience? Have you tasted and seen that he is good because you're meeting him in his word? Because you've developed some skills at this and you're, you're not perfect. None of us are, but you can see there's progress being made. You're learning how to pick up things. You're learning how to understand the Bible. Even understanding what an imperative is, is important. Some days that's harder for us than others. And certainly we can read the Bible in a legalistic, dutiful way, with cold hearts, only on the lookout for another fact. But just because we can recognize we can make even something good like reading the Bible into a sin doesn't mean we stop. Think of this, the scribes and Pharisees are well accomplished at this. But Jesus says, have you not read the scriptures? He's saying, you're not reading it right. We're to strive to meet with our God here where he's revealed himself to us. As we submit our wills and our hearts and our minds to his word, we can and we will see him. We will taste that he is good. It takes time but keep at it. The word of God constantly presents to us the Lord of the word. We don't, again, just pursue the word to say we're, we're doing it. We want to find the Lord of the word here in its pages. It's the only place we can find him. Coming to his word with a proper mindset, with humility, with prayer, presents the Lord of the word to us. We cannot detach the word from the Lord, but neither can we profess obedience to the Lord while rejecting or ignoring his word. Please don't ever diminish the word because you think somebody's misusing it. Our passage teaches us that the life you have in God, it must be changing you in your relationships with other believers and in your relationship to his word as you go through a difficult life. The desire to grow springs from an experience with God's kindness. And we see in this passage specifically, it's first tasted in salvation. We've been given life when we deserve death. It's an experience that leaves believers desiring more. 
As we experience hardship in life, like Peter's audience does, we tend to develop a stronger desire to see and know the goodness of God. We need that in our lives. Why? Because if the Lord is good, then the current circumstance in your life truly is light and momentary. If the Lord is good, our perspective on the trials will change. If the Lord is good, we can rejoice in his sovereign wisdom through that trial. If the Lord is good, then whatever sorrow or loss we face will serve his purposes. And our hope and our faith is built up in him. Do you know that your God is good? Are you tasting that? Are you experiencing that? May we be a people who are loving one another and longing for his word. Let's pray. Gracious God, we rejoice in the truths of your word that you uniquely reveal yourself here. We cannot know of Jesus apart from this book, apart from the gospel revealed here. And your word is sufficient. It sustains us. It continues to give life. It continues to provide health. It protects us against disease. So stir up in us a deeper and deeper craving, a deeper and deeper conviction and commitment to be people of this book. Father, may it change the way that we think about one another. Help us to love, even when it's difficult. Give us a desire to obey, even when we're discouraged, even when we're cast down, even when we recognize the impossibility of changing our hearts. In Jesus' name. Amen.